Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I want to tell you about an exciting event that we have every year for the almost the last 17 years, I believe, and that's the School of the Prophets. Bob Jones prophesied many years ago that Bethel Church would be one of three eagles' nests where we would train, equip, and deploy prophets into the four corners of the earth. And I want to invite you to this event. It's August 2nd through the 6th, four full days. It's on campus and online. You can find more information and register now at Bethel.events. But I want to tell you about it for just a few minutes. Several of you have this call to be a prophet or prophetess, or maybe you're a very prophetic person, and yet you've had no equipping, no skill training. You don't have a prophetic community. You don't really know what to do with the gift that you have. This school is for you. This school is for the pastors that would like to send their prophets and prophetesses and prophetic people to learn how to build a prophetic community. This is for people that are called to the seven mountains of society and bringing the prophetic ministry there. You're going to love it. Check it out. You're going to, we're going to have the essentials online so you can actually learn all the basic principles online. The day you sign up, you'll have the essentials course, and you'll learn that before you come to the school you're going you're gonna to make great connections, and you're also going to be deployed into your place of purpose and destiny. God bless you. See you there. Um, uh, well, uh, so exciting to be teaching on Father's Day. Uh, the Brownsville Revival started on Father's Day, June 18th, 1995. And I'm really come here today to declare war on fatherlessness and the deconstruction of the family and the cesspool of immorality that's plaguing our day. And I want to equip an army of righteous men to take their places on the earth as sons and fathers to eradicate the orphan spirit and usher in the era of family. That's a good word. (laughs) I don't know if you were here last week. How many of you were not here last week? I'm so ashamed. (laughs) Kidding. Good thing Jesus didn't come back, huh? guys be reading the book left behind or something no I'm totally kidding I uh, last week I I talked about the fact that I was in a meeting um, uh, two weeks ago and I was a meeting I was in a meeting we were talking about transition so of course on the top of my page of my notes I said talk about transition but when I got up to to say hey we're going through a transition which is quite obvious instead I heard this word and I said we were going through, when I got to the word transition, the Lord said to me, my spirit, not transition, a metamorphosis. And I said, oh, we're going through a metamorphosis. Now, I didn't have anything about metamorphosis in my notes. But I'm like, all right, what's the difference? And I said, in, a, in transition, we're going from season to season. But in a metamorphosis, it's not the season that's changing, but we're, but we're the ones changing. And I, I really believe that we are about to enter the greatest metamorphosis of our time when the ugliness of fatherless generation becomes the beauty of a new age of family values and legacy living. And I really believe that we are being thrust into this place where we are becoming a catalyst to an actual revolution that's transforming the family. I believe that God is not sitting silently by where people deconstruct the family and tell us it takes two moms or two dads. You don't need a mom and a dad. Genderless society. And I'm like, no, I don't think that the, that the God who depicts himself as a warrior stands aside and lets, everyone, and lets humanity slide into the cesspool of the ridiculous. And I'm going to talk mostly to men today 
um, obviously this is going to be uh, relevant to men and women, but uh, because it's Father's Day, I'm going to specifically address men both online and, and here on the campus. But I want you women to remember, I wrote, I wrote the book Fashion to Rain, so I love you all too. But if it's okay, I'd like to direct this to men, even though it would fit all of us. And you know that I believe that women are equally powerful, but distinctly different. And by the way, I do believe we are equally powerful, but distinctly different. I think sometimes we're so afraid of stereotypes that we have no role models. And I believe that God wants to raise up role models. And so um, I want to talk about three elements of fatherhood. Um, The first one is protect. The second one is promote. And the third one is provide. And I don't know if I'll get through all three of these, but, and these aren't the only three elements of fatherhood, but I want to talk about these three elements of fatherhood. As a matter of fact, in the garden, in the Genesis 2.15, in the Genesis 2 story, 1 and 2 story of, the, of creation, it says that the Lord God put the man into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Can everybody say cultivate, cultivate. and keep? The word keep is very interesting because, remember, they're in the Garden of Eden. But the word keep means to be aware, to be a bodyguard, to be a gatekeeper, to maintain, to protect, to secure, to take watch, and to be a watchman. And so from the, of their very nature of, of men, of males, is to actually be a watchman in the garden, if you will, in the garden of our life. You know, in my house, I have a, a, a wife that she's a hunter, I am not. I'm not a hunter, I don't like to kill things, but I do eat the things she kills, so I I don't complain. She rides horses, I don't ride horses, she hunts, I don't hunt, she fishes, I don't fish. I have been in a boat watching the fish come in, it's beautiful, but I don't like to gut them, so it's like, you know, so we have this situation, you know, she she shot an elk from 542 yards, 542 yards, this time, yes, yes, and, and we are eating it. We are eating it. So it's just in case anybody's upset about that, we actually eat, eat it. Um, but um, but when, if somebody breaks into our house, like I don't wake her up and say, hey man, go downstairs and check that out and I'll call the police. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's just, uh, there's something in the DNA uh, of, of men that we are protectors. If, you know, if somebody breaks into our house, we be, better be the first one to die. Yeah. At least be the first one to, the, the, you know, to to protect our family. We, we, are, we are there to protect our family. But I, I wanna just point out that we are not just the protectors of the physical conditions of our family, we are actually the protectors of the tri-dimensional nature of our family, spirit, soul, and body. And so we often talk about this protection thing, but someone came into my house, I'd break their legs. You're breaking their legs, but you're being overwhelmed by demonic spirits and don't even protect your family. And I, I just wanna point out, and this isn't a condemning thing, I just wanna inspire men, that oftentimes there are, there are amber alerts going off in many of our homes because our children are being abducted by the devil, but sometimes we're not in tune enough to even know they're missing. Okay, this, the whole sermon's going to go like this, do you? <laughs> I think that when you share challenges with men, they rise to the call. They don't run in wimpiness. We, um, this isn't going to be a weenie message, so... Put your seatbelt on because I'm challenging men. Why don't you step up and why don't we just change the world together? We don't have to be spiritual giants, but it is encumbered on us to be spiritual men. You don't have to be Bill Johnson, 
But you do have to connect with God. You know, when you get to heaven, he's not going to say, why weren't you Bill Johnson? But he might say, why, aren't, why weren't you Jack Jones? M- my point is, is that I don't have to be a spiritual giant, but it is my nature to have a spiritual relationship with God. Are you with me? So, I was in a, I was in a um, men's meeting, uh, men's conference. This is uh, the year before COVID on, uh, in, in Florida at this beautiful church, a Spanish-speaking church. And I was speaking there. But the senior pastor spoke there, and he was amazing. And he, remember, it was all men, so you kind of have to put yourself in the setting. It probably won't fit quite as well in this setting. Um, but he said, men go, to, men go to the gym every day to work out their body, but they don't take 10 minutes to pray. They have a $100,000 body and a 20-cent spirit. And he went on to say, some men know the stats of their sports teams, their names, and their history, but they don't know five characters of the Bible. Some men spend more time with their fantasy sports team than they do with their reality God. Whew. That's a, that's a challenge right there. It's really important that we don't give to the ministry at church to end sex trafficking and be addicted to porn at home. Like, do we understand what we're doing? That we aren't just men who protect our families physically, but how many understand that if I'm addicted to porn, if I'm doing crazy stuff, being dishonest, on and on, how many know that it's like opening all the doors and windows and living in the hood and wondering if anyone's gonna break in and take over? But, okay. How many know you can't conquer what you refuse to confront? And we don't have moral authority to rebuke what we actually practice ourselves. We don't have moral authority to rebuke something that we actually practice ourselves. Our own deep sense of spiritual inadequacy will not be defeated in retreat. I know as we talk this morning, and I feel inadequate often, I know as we share about the standard that God has for us, I often feel like it's the book of Nehemiah, I think it's chapter eight, seven or eight, when they read the law, they read the Bible for the first time in years, like 40 years. The people have never heard the Bible. And and the priests are up there and they're reading the Bible, and as they're reading, Other priests are running through the congregation explaining the Bible to them. And it says that they wept when they heard the word of God. It says they wept. And you know that verse, the joy of the Lord is your strength? It's the response. Nehemiah said, wait a second. Don't weep because you know now you've heard the truth. Count it joy that you actually know the truth. And what I'm getting at is sometimes when you hear a challenging message like this, you realize the standard's here and your life is here, not here, your life is down here like most of ours are, is, you know, it, it can be like overwhelming. But what I want to do is inspire you to rise to the call and take this generation and turn it around. We were in a meeting not long ago and we are talking about our university. We're going to have a university here in the next few years. God's given us a, a prophecy, and we've been talking about universities. And, you know, you, you probably know this, but the, 
the government is now really uh, has been so impacted by the LGBTQ and transgender people that literally, if you say, "Hey, I, I think that's," I don't think that's right that you become a hater and somebody who, not only do they block on Facebook, but you know, there's concerns about, will you be able to have a licensed credentialed school if you actually talk about the truth? And so we're talking about this and it's like, oh, 20 years from now, you won't, have a, you won't even be able to have a university. And I'm like, wait a second, we were born to win. I was born to win. All that evil needs to do needs to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And I'm not saying that there aren't people caught in sin that aren't good people. Of course, we were all caught in sin at one time in our life. But it's, it's, not, it's not in our nature to stay there. Are you with me? Every, our personal victories become our fam, family's corporate covering. Every foe we defeat in our own life is one less foe that they will have to face in theirs. Whenever our children catch us having a private conversation with God in prayer, they capture a glimpse into the power of the age to come that's being infused into our family trust. Let me say it one more time. Whenever our children catch us having a private conversation with God in prayer, men, they capture a glimpse into the power of the age to come that's being infused into their family's trust. When Solomon said that we should give an inheritance to our children's children, how many know that's not just money? In fact, it's not even mostly money. When our children catch us praying, they, they have caught a glimpse of the power of the age to come that's actually being infused into our legacy. How many times have you heard, my grandmother prayed for me, my father prayed for me. How many times have you heard, I'm here because my grandmother prayed for me? What was she doing? She was infusing the power of the age to come into that young boy, into that young lady. This is what we do. Fathers are commissioned to be courageous. We don't have the luxury of retreating in the face of danger. Let me try over here. Fathers are commissioned to be courageous. We do not have the luxury of retreating in the face of danger. It's the nature of fatherhood to rush into danger and defeat the foe that's trying to defeat our families. This is our DNA. It's in our very DNA. If we hide our battles from our children, they won't be prepared to win theirs when they leave our home. Let me say that one more time. If we hide our struggles with our children, first of all, they'll grow up, they'll, they'll grow up thinking, oh, my mom and dad were perfect. They had a perfect marriage and a perfect life and a perfect body and a perfect spiritual life and a perfect everything. How many know that is not the nature, that is not the nature of discipleship. The nature of discipleship is they watch me struggle and they watch the victories that come through the struggle. How many know? And on the other hand, when we invite our kids to view our struggles in life, it gives them, it gives them a front row seat in the academy of future victories. When my kids, when our kids watch a struggle, it might be a financial struggle, it might be a relational struggle, it might be a, a, a physical struggle, it might be a spiritual thing you have going on. And I'm, I know this has to be age appropriate. I'm not saying throw your three-year-old into the, you know, the cesspool of your, your porn issue that you're walking through. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there has to be some wisdom here. 
But when we hide our struggles from our kids, they actually don't actually know how to prepare for their own. But when, they, but when we invite them to watch the way we walk through struggles, how many know that we are inviting them into the academy of future victories? They will know how to defeat their enemy because they watched us defeat ours. Um, I want to talk a little bit about sexuality because I feel like this is one of the main places that culture is engaged right now. We're engaged in a cultural war and our kids are being bulldozed into a cesspool of immorality. Well, we stand by and go, they shouldn't teach that. Why are they teaching this? And, and I, I want to just be clear. Oftentimes, well, let me say it differently. Our kids, at, in, from kindergarten on in California, are being taught genderless curriculum, which basically says there is no he or she, boy or girl, your gender, your sex, is not, it's not predetermined biologically, but you make your choice. And your kindergartner is being taught about sex at five. It's not okay, but here's the biggest challenge. We scream about it and don't teach sex in our own homes. We are a master at screaming about what we hate and yet not doing anything ourselves. And I think that we would not have generalist curriculum in any school. We would not have perverted curriculum in schools, in my mind, if we were teaching the truth in church and at home. Uh, I think, you know, part of the challenge is when the agricultural age, which, you know, what was that, 200 years ago? Maybe a little further back than that, the agricultural age. But in the agricultural age, you know, they bred cattle and horses and, you know, all kinds of animals. And so you would have, as a child, you would have seen the breeding of animals as part of the normal upbringing, as part of your normal upbringing and what happens on the farm or in the ranch. But the challenge is, is that sexuality in general has been so hidden that it's become shamed. And, you know, we were um, talking through three, three years ago, three and a half years ago, about three transgender bills that were trying to be passed in California. And we were talking in our senior leadership meeting about, like, how should we, you know, approach the situation? Because, you know, people that are struggling, like transgender people, they, they need compassion, they don't need judgment. They need compassion. But they also need truth. And so we were talking through, like, well, we'll just do something on a Sunday and talk through this issue, homosexual issue, and talk about, and, 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 we're, and I was, like, totally on board. And then I, I said to myself, well, in the meeting, I actually spoke out loud, and I said, how can we talk about homosexuality when we don't even talk about healthy sexuality? That's going to feel like a reaction to something that's going wrong. And you know why it feels like one? Because it is. And I'm like, what if we actually started talking about healthy sexuality? What if we actually taught people how to teach their children? We don't just protect our children from harmful people. We prepare them for the cesspool of immorality. And so, you know, it's hard to complain about the school system 
teaching perversion when we don't actually teach it in our own, we don't actually teach healthy sexuality in our own home. I want to just talk about this area for just a few minutes because I feel like this is a great place for fathers to engage. Like when you go home and you say, all right, you know, I'm going to engage completely in my role as a father. I'm like, okay, what do I do? And I think this is a great area to start in because do you know that, do you know that, um, you know the principle of first mention? The, first, the principle of first mention says that the first time that you hear about a subject it doesn't just become truth to you, it becomes a lens in which you view that subject from that day forward. What I'm getting at is this. If your son is, you know, let's say he's, he's 15 years old and you decide to sit down and have a talk with him or her, and, but his friend talked to him about sexual perversion at 10, do you understand that he's going to view your talk through his friend's lens? In other words, God designed our children to get the lenses for, for morality and life and spirituality from their mothers and fathers. Are you, are you with me? So we get them first and we give them a lens. What happens when they, we, we start doing age appropriate um, uh, conversations about sexuality with them? I said age appropriate. What happens when we start exposing our children at five and six and seven and eight to age-appropriate sexuality, healthy age-appropriate sexuality, is we are not just teaching them truth, we are giving them the lens in which to discern truth. Then when they go to the school and they say, this could be, you know, you could be this, this, and this, and they go, oh, I know that's not true. And they can say that without the war to try to figure out why their mama taught them one thing, their friend taught them another. How many understand that they are viewing it through the discerning lens of what you taught them? What I'm getting at is that delayed, delaying your conversations in all areas, but in this area, it can be deadly. I know, I'm trying here. Secondly, I want to say that do you understand that the frontal cortex of your brain, of their brain, is not fully developed until they're 22 to 24? You're like, okay. What I'm getting at is their brain hasn't all grown in yet. That frontal cortex is the part of the brain that is the cause and effect thinking part of your brain. So have you ever asked your 15-year-old, like, why did you jump off the third-story roof when he's in a full body cast? And he goes, I don't know. You know why? He doesn't actually know. He is unable to process, I'm going to jump here. What is the ramifications of my jump? I'm saying he doesn't have the processor to process what's going to happen when I jump from here. Why did you hit your sister? I don't know. You tell me now. I actually don't know. No, he actually doesn't know. You're like, my kid's an idiot. No, he's not fully developed yet. Do, do you understand? <laughs> I just put some of you to peace. You're like, oh gosh, there is hope for him. Here, here's, here's the challenge. Do you understand that when your teenager comes into puberty, let's say, I don't know, average 13 to 15, right? Until they're about 20 years, 20 to 22, that's the highest sex drive they will ever have in their entire life. They have the highest sex drive with half a brain. 
You want to know where our children are in trouble? Now, what happens? Now, do you understand? They can't process, I'm going to have sex, and she's going to get pregnant. Or I'm going to have sex, and you're like, and you, if you do that, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to get a venereal disease, and your parts are going to fall off of you. You understand that? Look me in the eye. Can't, they can't process that. You know, you're, you're telling them, here's the result of doing something. And they can't process that's the result. But what they can process is your core values. See, what they can get is your lens. They can't process, if you do that, this bad thing could happen to her or to you or to both of you. They have a hard time processing that because they're the road, the, the, the freeway isn't built yet. But they can process core values because that's done in a different part of the brain. So when they get attached to you and you teach them virtues and values, they may not know like, if I do this, it's going to result in that, but they know, oh, this is the right thing to do because this is the way I see life. Are you following me? So they, <laughs> they need us to be connected and in a way that gives them the lenses to make good decisions, but not based on ramifications because they don't have that ability until later. Are you following me? So they need to know about things like sexuality. And, and you know, the challenge is, is that sexuality, I believe the world perverts it. Religion, re, religion shames it. But the kingdom celebrates it. <laughs> Some of you are already like this. And I'm right, all right, Lord, let him open to Song of Solomon. <laughs> Shame is so inbred in Christianity around sexuality. It is so inbred. I mean, we don't even know we're doing it. It's like when you say to your, you know, your one-year-old, we have a one-year-old now in our family, and it's like, this is your ear. And by the way, in the first service, I said, this is your eye. And they're like, is he trying to illustrate something different? You know, this is your ear, this is your nose, this is your mouth, and that's your binky. Okay, don't touch your binky. You know, and your kids play with their tongue. But when they play with their penis or their vagina, I'm like, oh my God, my kids have been molested. Don't touch it. What's wrong with you, you dirty, nasty. What did we just do? We just told our kids, there is something inherently evil about your body. Something evil. Don't talk about it. Don't touch it. And, don't, and, and, and definitely don't get involved with it. And what I'm getting at is that we come to our kids to tell them about, you know, to give them the talk, but we do it with the spirit of shame. Sweat's pouring off our head. They're like, honey, you go first. Oh, no, you, had, you gave birth to them. You do it. This is all your fault. I didn't even want to be there that night. You know, it's just... We have these crazy conversations and wonder why our kids don't come to us and why they think they're full of shame. And I'm like, guys, God created sex. It was his idea. Read it for yourself. It's in the Bible you haven't touched for a year. Genesis 1, God said, let them be fruitful and multiply. And when he finished all those verses about being fruitful and multiplying and creating all these human beings, he said he looked out and he saw everything was very good. 
He had just mentioned, be fruitful and multiply. And he looked out and he saw it was very good. How many know sex is very good? It's not good, it's very good. God's the one who gave you a sex drive. I know how to silence the crowd. What does it mean to have a sex drive? Now, I've done this in seven countries. I've asked this question for 20 years in seven countries. What does it mean to have a sex drive? Here's my definition. You want to have sex with somebody. If you've got a different one, I'd love to hear it. So your 15-year-old hits puberty, loves Jesus, goes to youth group. He's worshiping. Jesus, I love you. You are amazing. I want to have sex with somebody. He calls his youth pastors. The elders come around. Trying to cast the lust out of him. They get done. How do you feel? I want to have sex with somebody. You know, it's just. <laughs> Guys, this attitude is driving people to perversion. Can you understand that? This attitude is killing us. The goal isn't to get rid of your sex drive. The goal is to learn how to manage your appetite. And by the way, they're learning that from the time they're two and three. Do you understand when your kid wants ice cream and you're pushing them through the store? Guys, girls, you've seen this. I've done it myself. I, I, I'm guilty of all of these things I've just talked about not to do. And your kid's grabbing things off and they're screaming. And you know, I want ice cream. I want, I want candy. I want... And, you, and you finally give in just to shut them up and give them candy. You know what you just told them? You just told them you can have instant gratification if you yell long enough. Do you know why you have a sex drive years before God wants you to have sex? Why does God give you a sex drive and then not let you have sex until you're married? Which could be years. Because the, the value of your virginity is in the blood, sweat, and tears. It takes to get your virginity from the battlefield all the way to the honeymoon suite so that on the night you lay with your lover, you have something to give them you had to fight to keep. Because anyone can give away something expensive. Anyone can give away something expensive, but only people that understand sacrifice can give away something valuable. But if you don't know that, you're just shaming them into stopping instead of setting a vision in front of them and saying, I know, I'm trying. This is the best I have. I mean, aren't you glad God didn't like have a sit on a leg, an egg for nine months? <laughs> anyway, I, I won't get too deep in this, but I, I'm just saying, like, I don't know who would be here. Okay, honey, it's your turn. It's like, oh no, I sat on it all day yesterday. It's your turn. <laughs> Men, this is our responsibility. We lead in this. We come to our family with the truth. We expose our kids to healthy, well, right now we're talking about sex, but it's in all areas. We expose our kids to healthy sexuality. We don't let the perverts teach our kids. We don't let the porn star teach our kids. We don't let them learn about sexuality on the freaking internet. Please stop griping about it and get involved. I don't know what to do. I'm scared to death. You're never going to be unscared by standing on the sidelines hoping your fear goes away. I know it's going to sound a little prude, but I totally mean it. You should stand in the mirror and say, penis, 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 vagina, 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 until you can say it without turning totally purple and sweating. 
Because if you step into that conversation, I'm not being funny, and that's the first time you use those words, and you're trying to teach your kids like how to have sexual how to have a healthy sexual life, and your just shame is pouring off of you, they're not even going to hear your words. And the fact that it feels crude is the reason why we're in trouble. Okay. I have eight minutes. Only got through one. The next role of men is to promote. We protect, but we also promote. This is right in our DNA, men. And by the way, do you know, I'm not saying women don't promote, women don't protect. I'm not saying that. I'm speaking to the men today and asking the men to please come. And when I say, you know, I, I don't ever say to men anymore, you should be the spiritual leader of your home. I don't think that's true. I think we should both be the spiritual leaders of our home, husband and wife. There are things that come easier to to Kathy than come easier to me. And she leads in those areas of spirituality and and all areas that she's better at. And I follow and vice versa. We are a team. I'm not superior to her. I am superior in some areas. I'm better at some things. She's superior in some areas. She's better in some things. And I just got to be wise enough to know when should I follow and when should I lead. So just be clear, I'm just saying, men, step up and take your part, your, pla- your place, and do what you do. And promote is a big part of it. Do you understand that it was your sperm that determined, that determined the gender of the child? Like you carry the, the, the XY, she has X, and if, you, if your sperm gave her X, then, then it's going to be two X's, it's a girl. If it's XY, it's going to be a boy. It's, it's, listen, it's, it's just pure science. But what I'm getting at is God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature are clearly seen in what God made. So when God causes the man to determine the sex, how many know he's also saying, hey, fathers, you have a big influence on what your kids do because you are involved in even what sex they would be. Are you, are you with me? I offended some people, I'm not trying to. Sometimes I'm trying to, but not today. So fathers are tasked with helping their children discover their divine call and purpose in life. It's no wonder that in a fatherless generation, we have a generation locked in an endless search for identity. I don't even know what sex I am. It's not by chance that in the greatest fatherless, in the most fatherless generation in the history of the world, what is rising is an identity crisis. That's, it's not by chance. It's the, this is where fathers, this is father's primary purpose. Do, do, do mothers help, uh, step into? Of course they do. Please, no one be offended. But I'm saying, fathers, this is your place. You step in and you begin to raise up a child, train up a child. What's the rest of it? In the way they should go. In the way they should go. In other words, you have to be in tune to the way they should go. You know, you know who wrote that? Who wrote that? Yeah, it was, it, it, it was someone said Paul. No, it was actually Solomon. <laughs> you got to read your Bible. <laughs> I'm joking. It was the apostle. I'm sorry. It was uh, the, the King Saul. <laughs> it's interesting that Solomon wrote that, and I'll tell you why. David 
um, uh, the prophet Samuel came to David's house, the house of Jesse, his father's name was Jesse, and was looking for a king. God had sent him to Jesse's house to find a king. He gets to Jesse's house, and Jesse has eight sons, but only seven of them are present. He sees, the prophet Samuel sees Elib, the oldest and tallest. It says, the Bible says he was head and shoulders taller than everyone in Israel. Uh, that's a very tall man. And immediately he gets the oil and he starts to pour it over Elib and he hears in his spirit, Samuel, what are you doing? You are looking with the eyes of man and not the eyes of God. So Samuel gets rebuked by the Lord as a prophet. And so he says, well, line, line the guys up, line the boys up. So he lined the boys up and he goes, you know, boy, you know, son by son. And he feels nothing on any of them. And he doesn't know there's an eighth son. And he says to Jesse, is this all the sons you have? Like, do I have the wrong address? And Jesse goes, oh, no, I have one more son. He's in the field working with the sheep. And so he says, well, we'll call him. So he called, you know the story? They call him and he starts running in. He's probably, I don't know, 15 to 16. And it says, he's ruddy and redheaded. Um, let me be clear uh, what, the, what the author meant. He doesn't look like a king. Are you with me? Elib looks kingly. He doesn't look like a king. And God goes, that's the guy. Are you with me? And so he anoints David king. And what's my point? In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you know this. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things become new. What's the previous verse? I shared it last week. The previous verse is, um, is uh, powerful. <laughs> <We've>... <laughs> Man, you know what? I'm going to do this four times a day. So. We no longer know each other after the flesh, but after the spirit. The rest of the verse is, we did know Christ after the flesh, but now we know him no longer. Next verse, therefore, if anyone be in Christ. The point that Paul's making is that we have been transformed, but you're still evaluating people after the flesh when in fact they are a new creation. And here's my point to fathers. There may be a king in your home and you don't even know it. Jesse didn't even know that David was supposed to be a king and he was his dad. And I'm saying even Jesse was looking at David with his natural eyes going, he can't be a king, he doesn't look like a king. The prophet goes, he doesn't look like a king. And God goes, he's the king. Are you, are you following me? Solomon is raised by David and Bathsheba. When Bathsheba lost her first child, the Lord said to David, Bathsheba will have another child, and his name will be Solomon, and he will be king. So when Solomon wrote, if you train up a child in the way they should go, he didn't mean, like, teach him some good principles. Remember what else Solomon wrote in Proverbs? He writes things like, my father taught me, when you sit at the table of a king, put a knife to your throat, least they des desire delicacies. Did you notice he didn't write, if you sit at the table of a king, but when you sit at the table of a king? You know why? Because David and Bathsheba raised him to be a king because they were in tune, they saw with these eyes, and they didn't prepare him after he became king, they prepared him from birth to be king. 
I want to say, fathers, it is so important that you get involved. You don't have to have all the answers, but if you keep your eyes open, you will get little hints about where your daughters and sons are going, and you will infuse them with the wisdom they need for that specific call. Pay a close, close attention to who, to, to who your kids and how your kids relate to people. Because someone once said, you know, if you, um, if you show me your friends, I'll show you your destiny. And my point is, is that they will be attracted to people that have a like call on their life. They, you know, uh, Jesus said, when a teacher, when a pupil is fully learned, he'll be like his teacher. Your children may not have your occupation, but they will have your core values. And so it's really important that we expose our children, that we expose our children to other people who have the same kind of um, call on their life. Um, just uh, just a, a, a little hint. You'll have people over, which we all do, and you'll be talking about what was said and, and you know, oh, I sure like this about that person. They're so funny or they're so this or so that or, you know, like me, he's so handsome. You, I'm just being funny. Your kids will often be talking about some other aspect of that visit from your friends that you didn't think of. It's not just a different thought, it's a different DNA. Um, Say this, that's not right. It's not just a different thought, they're reading it through a different purpose in their life. And what I'm getting at is, you may not even have known that the person you had over was a great artist, but they noticed it because they're called to that realm. And so you start noticing, hey, every time we have these people, they talk about this creative thing on them. I think that creative, you you don't attract what you want, you attract who you are. And they're attracting people that have the same kind of purpose and destiny. And it's in you as a father and a mother to say, I think we should expose them to more of these people and see what germinates in them and what kind of destiny they have in their life. Does that make sense? And so, um, I, I love that. Well, that's half the message. Why don't you stand? Let me pray for you. I'm so proud of the men in this movement. Uh, Jason, my son, have started a, a ministry called Braveco in which we've just been gathering men. Every month we gather them here. By the way, there's a gathering again this coming month. Just get on Bethel.com. You'll see it come up in the next couple weeks. And we're just gathering men and in, in simple expression of teaching men how to be men. Because many of us, like me, didn't have a father. It's really difficult to know the role of manhood when you've been raised by a mom or when you've been raised in an orphanage or you've been raised in something that God never designed. But he, obviously there's grace on people. But, um, so, we just been, um, started, so we just started this ministry called Brave Co. And, and the next thing we're going to start doing is filling stadiums with men. Um, we just had T.D. Jakes at the first one. It was so fun. And uh, we're going to have John Maxwell there. We're going to have guys like that and just teach men how to be men. But then we have this whole discipleship platform where we're going to actually engage them for the next 12 months and teach them the ways of the kingdom and the ways of men. So I'm super excited about that. Would you just put your hand on your heart? I'm just going to pray for you right now. Lord, I thank you for the men in this movement that are watching on Bethel TV and on YouTube and that are in the room here today. And Lord, I pray for a grace to break free from 
the power of this age. And Lord, I pray that every man in the sound of my voice would become a heavenly man who leads their family. They become so heavenly connected that they finally become very earthly good. And that we could lead our families in the way they should go. Lead our children, our wives, the people around us, our culture, our society. And Lord, give us the courage and the wisdom to actually bring our best to to the game of life and help our families to prosper. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelleton.com. Have an awesome day.